Hello, this is Hope, and you're listening to Covert Castaway. Welcome to my weekly diary of what I learn and how I cope with transitioning to life as a liveaboard cruiser. In a moment, I felt it. A moment of clarity. Somewhere in the Bermuda Triangle, bobbing on a boat in an ocean miles deep. It came with the lightning that was approaching us in a distance. And it's a saying you hear all the time. But in that moment, I understood it for what it was. The ocean is always trying to kill you. Welcome to Covert Castaway. Today I'll share my first passage experience as offshore crew with 59 North on their Swan 59 named Ice Bear and what I learned on my first blue water passage. My husband is a recovering racer. I held an intervention and I put him in recovery. He didn't ask for it. Mind you, the kind of racing speeds we're talking about, I could easily beat on a bicycle and I don't pedal that fast. But over an ocean, in a transpack or a pack cup race, surfing downwind, it's enough to get anyone hooked on the drug I like to call blue water speed. While doing these races, He's had a chance to do many offshore passages. So when he and I talk about doing long passages, he talks about it like, you know, it's no big deal. When I'm still trying to imagine being confined to a 50-foot space for three to four weeks. Although, in all honesty, it's bigger than my office, which is where I spend most of my days on conference calls and video conferences. Offshore passages were one of those things that was sort of something people talked about. But since I'd never experienced it, I just couldn't relate. The sailing I had done up to this point was day sails or long coasts from key to key. The concept of going days and weeks across an ocean wasn't something I could picture for myself in my head. I've seen a lot of videos and heard people talk about it, but I had no way to know how my body would respond to it. It was just this black box that might be terrifying, or it might be the magical, romanticized experience where people find themselves. I just didn't know. Obviously, the primary reason was to make me a better sailor. It never ceases to amaze me. All you need to do to race or crew on a boat across the ocean is basically get someone to let you jump on the boat and help. Well, assuming the skipper is cool with having a girl on board. What I've grown to appreciate is that it could take multiple lifetimes to be a competent sailor, which is why it's so strange to me that with boating in general, you don't need any training at all to buy a boat and operate it. To me, what that means is there's a lot of people on boats, more every day actually, that you may not want to be around in the water, and I might be one of them. I'm not a complete bonehead, nor am I thoroughly incompetent. I mean, I did put the time in to take classes, and I do have four fancy certifications with shiny stickers and everything in my personal logbook. I'm just not at all at the point where everything comes second nature yet, and this is why I decided it was time for me to take on a passage. So why did I think I needed to do a passage to get deeper experience? My natural tendency is to go big or go home, baby, which is a great slogan on a t-shirt, but can sort of fall apart when you try to apply it in your everyday sailing lives. My husband and I organize weekend day sails when the weather's good, which in California is a decent amount of time. We bring friends on the boat, and the next thing you know, I'm in the galley laying out a fruit plate while my DH is on deck being the boss teaching people tacking maneuvers. It's not his fault. He's charming and people love him. But being the cruise director, the chef, fender jockey, and even sometimes a ship's medical doesn't further my goals in getting more actual sailing experience. So back to the go big or go home. 
I wanted to be pushed outside my comfort zone in a situation where my role wasn't also being responsible for everything else on the boat. The final reason, which is sort of related to that, I wanted to take on as many of my fears at once as possible. Desensitization, I guess you could say. As I mentioned in my podcast on fear, I went through a six-month binge where I read every nonfiction sea survival stories I could, and even a couple Navy SEAL and military training manuals. I couldn't help myself, and my husband kept asking me why I was reading all of it. I think he was worried I would get scared and not want to execute on our plan. I think I did it because I wanted to take the mystery out of the worst-case scenario. Yeah, I could drink turtle's blood if I really had to. And note to self, sucking on candy helps you recover from hypothermia. This kind of stuff just makes me feel more empowered. It was about this time I also started binging on podcasts from Andy Schnell from 59 North called How I Think About Sailing. My husband and I both started listening at about the same time. Andy and his wife Mia run an operation that takes crew on blue water passages. And one day I looked up their schedule and decided I wanted to do one. I only had two weeks of vacation, so I had to fit it in that window, and I wasn't ready for Arctic sailing, so that narrowed down the options. I found a passage to Bermuda easy enough to make work with my work schedule, so I booked it online. I was a little bit concerned my husband might think it was a bit impulsive, but actually he really supported the idea when I brought it up. I know there are a hundred free ways to be crew on a passage, but I only had two weeks of vacation time for a certain time window, and I needed to be able to feel like I could trust the skipper and the boat. These guys seemed to know what they were doing, and a swan is pretty hardcore when it comes to offshore sailing. Plus, the registration information was pretty buttoned up and comprehensive, which is always a good sign. Okay, so here's all the things I was tackling on my go big or go home trip. The Bermuda Triangle, the cusp of hurricane season, upwind sailing, deep water where there's sharks, a passage longer than seven days, and the last thing, a boat filled with guys. Mia was on the boat, and not to read too much into anything, but I did get a sense that she was happy to see another woman on board. The requirement for packing is that everything had to fit in a 70-liter bag. This includes layers, valleys, boots, and gear, clothes for two weeks, which included tourist time on both ends of the trip, toiletries, and a sleeping bag-ish type of thing that I bought at a camping store. Although it would be hot in Florida and Bermuda, I hate being cold, and I knew it was definitely possible offshore. Don't laugh. It got good use and other people on the boat were jealous. After using super stealth techniques to try to hide the size of my bag at the United Airlines gate, I was relieved that I got through. I always get called out on stuff like this because I'm like 5'2", and carry-on bags I have always look bigger than the big and tall guy next to me with his actual same size bag. The secret is to carry your jacket over it so they just think it's the coat that's bulky. Why didn't I check my bag? Well, because my bags tend to wander off if they're separated from me at the airport, so I've learned to pack like a Girl Scout and always carry on. I may have caused long-term nerve damage to my neck dragging that bag around, but when I finally got to the dock and met Andy and Mia, it was all worth it. The rest of the crew was made up of five other men. Two were a tad bit older than me, one was about my same age from Canada, and then there were two 20-something brothers a bit older than my son is now. I'll leave their names out more to protect my own identity as much as theirs in the rest of the story. But first off, what I found is that people who earnestly like to learn about sailing are some of the highest quality people on the planet. Open-minded, optimistic, supportive, and super high EQ. And these people were no different. I got an upper bunk on one of the side cabins that I shared with the Canadian. Let's just call him Goose, since it sort of matches the Canada theme. 
Really nice guy who shares the same goals with his family as I did with mine about living aboard someday. Competent, knowledgeable, with a bright and shiny personality. And we're both in tech, so there you go. We spent two days waiting for a weather window to cross. The long and short of it was that it was going to be an upwind sail anyway, so any additional weather would not be good. And we were right on the cusp of the start of the hurricane season. Andy went through a safety briefing that was a couple hours long, and the net takeaway was, don't fall off the boat. He covered way more stuff, but this was his fundamental point. We threw off the lines about 8 a.m. the next morning, and our watch schedule started at noon. I'll be honest here and say the first couple days were a bit of a blur. We were all asked to use the scopolamine transdermal patch, since bad seasickness can lead to bigger problems offshore. And I know that these patches make my head foggy for the first day. But the weather was gorgeous. We saw a lot of dolphins and turtles with light wind between 8 and 10 knots the first couple days. The wind picked up a bit, and we got a lot of rain, rain, rain. There's no shelter on the boat in the rain, so we were all soaked on watch. It was also during this time the new autopilot Andy had put in was proven to be faulty, so we shifted to hand steering. About this time, my buddy Goose started getting seasick, so the watch schedules got switched up to account for both that and the autopilot issue. Originally on watch was me, Goose, and the professor, a 60-something man who lived in London who was a college professor. We had four-hour watches, but those got moved around as Goose rested from seasickness and deep inspection on whether or not sailing was in his future. I felt so bad for him, but we were sort of all sure that it would pass in a day or two. Somewhere in between day three and four, since one side effect of being on a boat is you lose track of what day it is, there were huge storms on the horizon with thunder and lightning and a shelf cloud that's even hard to describe. What's a shelf cloud? Here's the official description of a shelf cloud that pretty much sums it up. Quote, A shelf cloud is a low, horizontal, wedge-shaped cloud associated with a thunderstorm gust front, or occasionally with a cold front, even in the absence of thunderstorms. A rising cloud motion often can be seen in the leading part of the shelf cloud, while the underside often appears turbulent, boiling, and wind-torn, end quote, which is pretty much what it looked like. If anyone watches Stranger Things on Netflix, when the shadow monster appears out of the clouds, that's what it looked like. We took the sails down and quickly turned out of the direction of the storm front, which probably added a day to our trip overall, but no one was complaining about it. Looking back on the logbook now, it just said squalls, but that's not at all what I remember. I remember the thunder and lightning having everybody on edge, the skipper included. He gave us a pep talk about lightning striking more in marinas versus on water because the boat's motion helps release electricity buildup or something like that, but I wasn't buying his science. Lightning strikes tall things. And on the water, we were the tall thing. We sailed off course a bit and wiggled around waiting for the front to pass. And as we settled onto day five or so, things got really rough. I don't think there was that much wind, maybe 25 knots. But we were sailing into the wind and maybe some current. So it was very bumpy with white caps. The professor woke me up for our watch, which started in the middle of the night. I was in such a deep sleep and there was so much crashing that I couldn't even hear my alarm. Upwind sailing was in full force. After battling with the bulkhead, trying to get my fallies on without bashing my brains in, we made the trek from the salon up to the helm, which felt like it took an hour because you were fighting gravity and clipping and unclipping your tethers all the time. The port side of the footrail was completely in the water and the boat was crashing against the waves. Andy poked his head out and asked us how we felt. He would wake up for every shift change and save his watches for when things went wrong or where there were really big sail changes. The professor said, 
I'm on the margin. And I was like, dude, I am way over the margin. I won't lie. This is scary. He made his decision to heave to for the night. And the second we did, everything calmed down. Wow, what a difference. It was in that moment, it dawned on me that what we were doing was actually pretty dangerous. I have to take a minute to talk about upwind sailing here. Spoiler alert, it's not fun. It takes four times longer to do anything, and I had bruises all over my forearms and shins trying to avoid moving objects or trying to counterbalance my weight in anticipation of a wave. At one point, one of the brothers, I'll call him the bros, his lee cloth broke which didn't give me any confidence sleeping when we were on tack at a 20-degree lean opposite my bunk wall. From that point on, I rolled up my sleeping bag and used it as a wedge so I wouldn't be completely constantly leaning on it. The tricky part was getting up to use the head or for the watch when Goose was fully leaned into his cloth below me and I had to get out of my bunk. I didn't want to step on the poor guy, so I started to spider monkey my way down scaling walls. But you get close after a few days and he just ended up getting stepped all over. The absolute worst part of the leaning and bashing on this trip was a trip to the bathroom I took, maybe it was day four or five, after a watch, and Goose had gotten sick. I understand. When you're sick, the last thing you can muster is the will to do cleanup on vomit. So in I went. I pulled out the head faucet. You kind of pull it out and it extends, and that whole part of the extension of the faucet was rusted. They don't normally do showers on these kind of passages. They do it on the deck of the boat. And this was a new vessel for them. So I'm sure they hadn't gone through it to do retrofit on old parts. Um, This is totally understandable. So there I am in this tiny space, like an airplane bathroom, walls covered with sick, holding a rusty faucet, trying my best to hose everything down and push the bilge pump simultaneously with my hip. All the while avoiding getting thrown into the pukey walls due to the constant hurling and flinging the boat's doing with my body in that space. At some point I gave up. I opened the door, stripped off my clothes, and just washed it down like you would spray down your car. And I got a shower out of it too, which was awesome since I hadn't bathed in like four days. The byproduct of all this was because we were leaning so far over, the bilge wouldn't fully drain the floor. So there was just this gross sludge that uh, didn't hide evidence of the mess feeling a little guilty for indulging in a shower, even though I did clean up everything. You're welcome. I went up to tell Andy about the bilge. Night watches were really cool, though. Besides the bioluminescence, the sky is just incredible. What I loved about watches with the professor is there wasn't any weird pressure to talk. He and I are both natural introverts, so stargazing was fine with us after the pleasantries settled. Plus, there's no party rock version of me in the middle of the night anyway, so silence was bliss. Night watches were beautiful. The stars are incredibly bright and something you just don't get to see a whole lot living where we are. I mean, there are always stars, of course, but in the ocean, far away from any other form of light, the stars and the moon put on a beautiful show. Things settled for the next couple days as we descended slowly on Bermuda. At one point, we decided to heave to and take a swim. At that point, we were in water about a mile deep under the keel. Enter my irrational fear of sharks. So I took an extra long time putting my bathing suit on to be sure everybody else was in the water before I jumped in. Up to that point, we were seeing Portuguese man-of-wars everywhere, too. The ocean was littered with them. Their floating little sails flapping in the wind. They look so lonely and demure. But those dudes will kill you. And they had been all around us, so we were all on the lookout for those, too. So I dove in and I swam my ass off to get to the line attached to the back of the boat and hauled it up the stairs as fast as I could. I felt like a complete chicken, but so it was. After about an hour or so of that, we started off on our trip again, gleefully giggling from the revelry. 
Only about 10 minutes later did we spot a huge, dark swimming thing with a big fin sticking out of the water. It was not a dolphin. It was at least half as long as a boat for sure. So what's that, like 30 feet on a 59-foot boat? Okay, so just let's even say my perception was off and it magnified how big things looked underwater. Say it was 15 feet, but still, that's really big. That shut all of our mouths and we all just kind of sat in silence for the next half hour. So there was that. Because the weather was nice, the professor busted out a sextant. I was like, okay, dude, you win. I got to help him take sights, but I've got to say, what was most impressive wasn't that he knew how to use it. It was that he had the courage to lug that thing in its wooden case all the way from Heathrow. That's serious commitment. I didn't get to spend too much time with his bunkmate after we set sail. I'll call him the mayor. I don't know why. He's just friendly and he looks like a mayor, and that's the best way to describe him. The mayor was sort of an elusive figure on the boat. That's what happens when you're in opposite watch schedules. Nice guy all the same, super friendly and interesting. As for the Bermuda Triangle itself, the depth gauges stop working at 999 meters, or feet, depending on the setting. So for most of the trip, it just stayed there, until it didn't. The professor and I noticed it a few times on our watch, where it would be like 999, then shoot to 400, then 200 something, then 59, 58, 57, up to 14 feet, and we were like, what's going to happen? Then it would vanish. I'm sure it was a fish or something. Hmm. We arrived at Bermuda while I was finishing my early morning watch at the helm at sunrise. It was absolutely stunning, and the smell of land was quite powerful. Goose suddenly found the energy to emerge. We motored into St. George's Harbor, and I was relieved and also a little bit sad. We got there on Mother's Day, which I describe in my podcast called Earning the View, so check that out if you haven't heard it yet. We proceeded to the immigration office, and I got my first stamp ever in my passport that read, Arrived by Sea. How cool is that? So let's see. Bermuda Triangle, check. Sharks, check. Storm and lightning, check and check. Upwind sailing, triple check. Boats with boys, definitely check. I left the boat with a lot more confidence than I had walking into it. Andy knew what he was doing matching me up with a professor. He'd done a number of passages and gave me super helpful advice in the most humble, productive way possible. I could not have had a better boat buddy for sure, and I learned mostly from him on this trip. Andy was knowledgeable for sure, and he's a natural-born chatterbox, always talking and explaining stuff, so you can't help but pick things up when you're on his boat. But in terms of applied knowledge, I think on this kind of experience, who you get as a watch partner makes all the difference. The bros were the ones Andy had do all the sale changes, so those guys definitely got their money's worth. Or it was Andy's way of entertaining himself. Those guys had to do sale changes like every time they were on watch. I also learned I could sleep. I love my bed at home, asked my family. One of my favorite things to do is to get into bed at night with all my pillows and earplugs and eye masks. I'm also a light sleeper, and I was really concerned that I wouldn't be able to get sleep when I needed to, especially with the watch schedule. I can turn into a crazy person if I've not had my sleep, and it's worse when my monkey brain keeps me up worrying about everything. This was not an issue for me. The bunk is kind of like crawling back into the womb. And I was out like a light within minutes and slept through everything, even my alarm. Everybody was awesome. Very high quality people, respectful, and great to be around. I would do a month-long passage with any of these people if I had a chance to in the future. And Andy and Mia were amazing hosts, and any passage with them is not to be missed if you get a chance to do it. Please do. The big takeaway on this trip was probably reinforcing the fact that who is on the boat and how people work together on a passage makes all the difference in the world. Trust and looking out for each other is critical. 
Everyone was doing their part to be helpful. And it's important because if things go sideways, your life might very well depend on the person standing next to you. It made me grateful to have such a wonderful sailing buddy back home. Patient, calm, and never want to deliver a biting comment on the boat. Passages can be intense, more so than this one for sure. But I can see how with lack of sleep, some seasickness, grumpy bumpies from being thrown around a boat, and maybe some kind of system failure, group dynamics could easily escalate. What about you? Have you ever done a passage? And what was your big takeaway from the experience? Join the conversation on the Covert Castaway Facebook page. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, like, or share with another Covert Castaway. Fair winds for now. Fair winds for now.